Hi, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Numbers, the show where we dig a little bit deeper to understand what's really important in business. I'm your host, Dave Bookbinder. I'm a senior director of valuation services at Pine Hill Group. Today, we're talking mergers and acquisitions, this time from the perspective of the attorney. So I'm pleased to welcome Joe Cadleck of Pepper Hamilton. Joe, good morning. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Dave. Appreciate you uh, having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure. First, tell the audience a little bit about your background, who you are, and just a little bit about the firm, and then we'll take a deeper dive into things. Sure, sure. So I'm a corporate and securities partner in, in Pepper Hamilton. We are a national law firm headquartered out of Philadelphia, but with offices all through the Northeast and a strong presence in California. Uh, with we're about 400 attorneys nationwide, a couple, a little over 200 in Philadelphia. Um, so my practice is what that means to be in corporate and securities. It, it could mean a lot of different things depending on what you do. Uh, I'm focused on mergers and acquisitions, transactions, as well as some venture financings and emerging company work. Uh, others that are in our corporate and securities group focus on things like fund formation and ongoing compliance efforts. Uh, certainly plenty of public securities work uh, and, and regular uh, government reporting. And uh, we also have a very strong healthcare, health sciences practice group uh, that, that bleeds into corporate and other areas. Um, in fact, we're one, one of the top 30 largest health sciences practices in the country. Um, and one of the great things that that group does, and it's also true in our corporate group with some of the specialist areas, we really try to work together and bring a collaborative sense to our deals. Um, so in the health sciences space, you know, there are somewhat traditional corporate attorneys in that group, but they focus on health care transactions and they work regularly with the regulatory folks, sometimes the litigators, so that we can provide a, a comprehensive set of services to our clients. In the more traditional corporate group, you know, when I'm doing a deal, I am relying heavily on our tax folks, our labor and benefits experts, certainly IP specialists, sometimes the healthcare regulatory specialists. And I think one of the biggest value adds from everything I just described is that all of the specialists at Pepper, and this is a real strength, I think, of ours, they have their own practices as well. They're not just supporters uh, for our deal work. So they really come to this with understanding how the day-to-day -day business works, understanding the legal issues outside of the deal, because they're often the ones that are coming up in the context of the deal. Yeah, so. and we're going to dive into that in a little bit. Uh, so when you think about the deal ecosystem, right, there's a lot of players, providers of capital, intermediaries, the, the people right. involved in transactions and so forth. Talk about your role in the deal community and, and when you're brought into that picture. Sure. So, so that can depend on who the client is. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, some, sometimes we are regular outside counsel for either corporations or, or a private equity firm. And we do regular business. We see the day-to-day. -day. Uh, I get sometimes very complex questions late at night that need to be resolved quickly. Sometimes it's very short and easy questions that we just need somebody to be bounced off of. Um, and in that context, the deal work kind of comes with the regular engagement. Uh, other times we may be brought in specifically for a deal. You know, certainly sometimes uh, a family business, let's say, we, we do a number of those. Um, they may not have regular uh, representation, at least uh, somebody like Pepper who would be brought in for the deal specifically. In any case like this, it's so important that we understand the business, that we understand how the, the motivating factors for our client fit into the context of the deal. That's so important. You, I mean, you can just do a deal without knowing much about your business. It present a lot of issues for your client long term. Uh, so it's important to really understand that and understand the risk factors. 
Um, as far as when we're brought into the deal, it, it, it's been learning curve for me over my, over my years. So that, uh, I had a great experience about four years ago. I was uh, in, involved with an association called uh, the Association for Corporate Growth. It's, it's a national organization focused on the middle market space. ACG. ACG. And they have a university training program. And what it's for is for mid-level associates or junior associates from various walks of this deal community. So there's lawyers, there are investment bankers, strategics, private equity firms. Um, and it's a group of you know, 30, and, and they talk about uh, various sessions, talk about the deal ecosystem, the deal life. And yes, there's, of course, a networking component to it. But what I realized in that experience a few years back was out of 10 sessions or so, the legal part, the purchase agreement, was number nine. Huh. So where, where I thought we were always, be, we, were, we were the deal, right? When I right. was a junior associate, all the diligence, the legal work, that was the deal. I, I quickly came to learn, and I've certainly seen it as I've gotten more senior, so much work goes into sourcing these deals, establishing relationships, getting through management presentations, doing diligence to understand what uh, an acquirer is actually buying. And, and we're brought in at the end. And so okay. what that means to be brought in at the end is we're confirming assumptions. We are flagging issues that maybe a seller hasn't identified yet uh, for one reason or another. Um, and also just for the known issues that have been identified, we're just trying to figure out how to best manage them. Uh, and hopefully not, we shouldn't be the ones derailing a deal um, unless, we're, unless we're identifying issues for a client that they just can't handle. So. Right, yeah, I mean, a lot of times I'm sure attorneys get the bad rap as being those folks that are the ones responsible for derailing it, but that's not really the case. Well, it, it can be. It can be, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think... I'm trying to be fair to my attorney friends. Right, I appreciate that. Um, I, 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 look, I'm not, I'm not always in the client seat. Uh, we can talk about one experience later where I was in the client seat, but um, although I'm not in that seat, I imagine one of the most frustrating things for clients when they're on a call can be two lawyers fighting it out about some, some point that either isn't that important or that the clients on both sides may not understand why it's important and it just right. sounds like a legal issue. I have to think there's almost nothing more frustrating than hearing lawyers just trying, each one trying to sound like the smartest person in the room. Yeah, so, true. So you make an interesting point. So I've been in the deal community for most of my career, a former investment banker um, and obviously in valuation consulting. So. I read a lot of legal documents, and my colleagues and I would always joke that we've read so many legal documents yeah. that we should get an honorary law degree. And we don't really understand the law. We understand kind of the nuances of language and how things are supposed to work around deal mechanics. But it occurred to me as we were talking that you really have to be smart in parsing business language and right. understanding you know, the nuance that maybe you're not necessarily you know, historically trained to do. Talk a little bit about that and what it's like to sure. really understand the deal terms. Right. It's, it's critical. It's absolutely critical, and, and certainly when I'm working with more junior or mid-level folks in my firm, it's something I am constantly stressing because it's not always in your face. Um, when I am looking at a purchase agreement, and there's, you know, there's a numer numerous sections and articles of, of this sometimes very lengthy document, right? Um, it is so important to understand that the business words match up to the legal words, and it's not easy. Sometimes there's a reason why the legal words look so complex. Um, but sometimes that's lawyers getting in their own way and, and just making things more complicated so that both sides don't even really understand what's being said. Uh, one thing that I, I've always tried to do um, once I started getting in charge of the purchase price mechanics or, or how the waterfall or allocation works is to really 
draft what I understand the language to be, but then take, take a step back and sort of chart it out in Excel or, or whatever program you want to use or Word or, or whatnot, and just chart out to make sure that the numbers actually match what my understanding of the deal is. And then connect with the client to make sure that's their understanding as well. Um, you know, I've had cases where I may get something from the other side that seems reasonable. It may be my understanding of the deal. But when I flag that, here are the key deal terms um, for a client, you know, assuming it's not something that's very clearly identified in a letter of intent or whatnot, but here are the key deal terms. I've had surprises where our, you know, our side will say, that is not my understanding of the deal. Yeah. Um, so it's important to flag those. But going back to the point about it's, it's almost like an algebraic equation for me, the purchase price sections. This is the starting price. This is how an adjustment works. And it, it needs to match up. And I, not every deal, but a lot, and a lot of times, once I put the numbers to the formula, they don't match up at first. Mm -hmm. The words might look logical. They might make sense, whether, whether I drafted them or the other side. But there's sometimes a gap. And it, it's not a right or wrong thing. It's just, a, it's not like somebody was intentionally doing something. but. Um, having that process to make sure that the language works out is, is so key. Even beyond that, though, you know, I, I, I was very, very fortunate when I, I, I lateraled to Pepper from another firm uh, six years ago. And pretty early on there, I had a great experience with a writing coach at, at Pepper. He was a retired partner, very senior, and um, really knew the ins and outs of this deal drafting. And his focus was helping not just the associates, sometimes the partners as well in their writing, uh, but being crisp, being precise, and making sure that words make sense yeah. to, to the business, to the business, the clients. Um, we, we talked about how, you know, how a litigator might respond to what we wrote, because that's important, right? The words usually make sense. The business community, or the, the, the uh, business persons on both sides may understand how a deal works. And, the words, may the words may never be in dispute, yeah. but they're in dispute when they're in dispute, right? Understood. And so we need to understand how the litigators read those words too. And it was, it's been very valuable for me over my years as you, I've established, put that into my practice. You said a lot of interesting things there. One of the things I want to focus on is you talk about matching up numbers to match words and intention of the deal parties. Right. Um, I had an experience with a client where uh, upon some exercising conversion of preferred shares, they expected that they were gonna have to essentially give up maybe 5% of the company. We were engaged to help with the valuation analysis around that, and in doing the actual analysis, uh, the client learned that they were actually giving up about 25% of the company, and they were <laughs> surprised. Um, so there's a couple of components there, right? So obviously, people didn't do what you just described. Uh, client said that they didn't really review the, the language because they, they were suffering from uh, document fatigue. They had been through sure. so many iterations. It, how often do you see document fatigue? I mean, obviously, clients have to have a responsibility of making sure they read every draft every time, but... Well, yeah, right. These, these are long documents, and they very rarely get negotiated in one or two turns. There's a lot of back and forth. And um, I think it's so critical that we are looking and identifying the key issues at, at the outset so that they're on people's radar. Um, because be, to, to what you just described, once a client, or sometimes once the lawyer, thinks a deal issue has been resolved, you, don't, you may not think about it again. Um, what I try to do as the deal progresses, once we get past a certain point, I try to look back at those initial issues lists and make sure that the things that we, maybe things that we actually agreed to or that our client agreed to, still make sense in the context of the deal. Because right, as the negotiations happen, 
you're trading this for that, or you're trying to come to some compromise. And something that may have made sense early on may not make sense so much three quarters of the way into the deal. Um, and again, I gave the example earlier where what I read in a deal was reasonable and seemed like a reasonable approach. It made sense to me in the context of the deal, but it wasn't our client's understanding. Every time those issues come up, we have to be summarizing it for the client and, and, and flagging the key issues. Um, and again, key issues. Any draft of an agreement is going to have pages of issues that a lawyer could, could parse, right? And sometimes we need to put those in front of our client, identify items for them. But there's a matter of prioritizing. There's a matter of getting the key things on people's radar early. Uh, and if we don't do that, deal fatigue can set in yeah. very quickly. Um, yeah, so the message is, uh, if you're responsible for reviewing transaction documents, make sure you don't get lazy and get fatigued. We'll keep reading. So, uh, Joe, I imagine that you know, business owners, CFOs, and other executives who are responsible for being a part of the deal team uh, might want to reach out to you. Sure. What's the best way they can contact you? Sure. So, a lot of lawyers and major law firms have websites, and we do as well. Pepper Hamilton's website is pepperlaw.com. Uh, I have my own page where you can find some information about me and my email address, which is just Cadlick, my last name, J, at pepperlaw.com. And I'm certainly on LinkedIn. You should feel free to, everyone should feel free to reach out. Um, I heard a great saying from somebody at Pepper who said, you always have to eat breakfast, eat lunch, and for lawyers, you have to have drink coffee. So I'm always available for if people want to reach out and just talk a little bit further, happy to do so. Never eat alone. Great advice. We've got to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back with Behind the Numbers. Living for seniors age 62 and over, People Inc. offers safe, maintenance-free apartments across Western New York. The affordable rent is income-based. For more information, call People Inc. Senior Living at 817-9090. In a world where bankers have lost all interest, where robots and fat cats rule our fortunes, one woman Hi. will stand up and strive to do the impossible. Be treated like a person. Friends and neighbors will join her quest. Ordinary people will band together against the forces of corporate greed. And together, they will form Philadelphia Federal Credit Union, already in a neighborhood near you. Assurance. It's a word, a touch, a look that sparks a feeling. Peace of mind that everything will be all right. These are the moments that inspire us to do more than you'd ever expect from a car insurance company at a price that's less than you'd expect. This is more than just insurance. This is Plymouth Rock Assurance. Visit us at PlymouthRock.com.
name's Casey Price, host of a brand new show called Everyday Elder Care. My show will help you take the stress out of caring for your elderly loved one by educating you about options and solutions you may not even know exist. Tune in every Tuesday at noon on RVN TV. We'll see you there. Imagine the... Welcome back to Behind the Numbers. My guest today is Joe Cadleck of Pepper Hamilton. We're at the point in the show where we like to talk about something called the bottom line, where my guests get to offer their tips, tricks, insights, the things that they've learned from business. So Joe, what bottom line wisdom would you impart to our viewers? Well, I think it's, uh, it's important for people when they're getting through the deals, and it's important for lawyers who may be listening as well. Uh, there's not always a right or wrong answer in our space. Uh, as far as what the right legal answer, what the right uh, or the wrong legal answer is in a, in a deal okay. context. And, and really what does drive, I think, the closest thing to a right answer is leverage. Okay. Yeah. Let's dive a little bit deeper sure. into both of those points. So no right answer. In my world, there's a lot of shades of gray. It's a lot of judgment. Sure. Talk about in your world. Well, certainly it is. It, look, the space that I'm generally in is the lower middle market and middle market and generally uh, private transactions. If you are dealing with public transactions where the, mer the merger purchase agreement is being filed with the SEC, you know, sometimes there is more of a standard way of doing things. Um, in our world, yes, there are some market, uh, market positions, there are standard ways of doing things, but I think there's a, more than just shades of gray. Um, every deal is different, every deal is unique. And if you go into a negotiation and you're saying, this is the market position, or we never do things this way, which we hear a lot. Um, you know, that's not putting the, the particulars of this deal in, in the right context. And when I mention um, leverage driving this, that's what you can push a right answer toward. So if you are a seller and you have a lot of leverage, which is becoming more common in this market today with valuations what they are, um, you know, the, what may be market for a particular industry or for a particular deal size, if you're a seller with a lot of leverage and everybody wants to buy your company, you can really push that, what's market, down a level or up a level. Um, so it really drives everything we see. Um, you know, I've had transactions, you mentioned deal fatigue earlier, sometimes as people are starting to butt heads a little bit, uh, if somebody's genuinely ready to walk away from a deal and the other side is not, that can produce leverage. And, and we've had clients take either early in the deal or late in the deal, very aggressive positions, which I'll admit my initial reaction may have been, you know, this may, this may crater the deal. I don't know how this is going to be, uh, how the other side's going to respond to this. And they may ultimately get it. And we've had cases of that. Um, leverage drives the right answer. So. Great. Good stuff. Thanks for that. I want to diverge just a little bit sure. and talk a little bit about you personally and what kind of drives okay. you. And I know you're involved with an organization called Lucy Outreach. Right. Talk a little bit about that for those who don't know what that is. Okay, thanks for asking. So Lucy Outreach is, uh, Lucy stands for Lifting Up Camden's Youth. It's a youth outreach program in Camden, New Jersey. Uh, we, the, the program has been around in some form for 30 years. It, its current iteration, I'd say, has been around for about 10 years uh, when our current executive director took over the program. Uh, it, it's, it's a youth outreach program for 
social leadership and service development for the kids. Uh, there's a spiritual component, and most importantly, an education component. Uh, all the kids are there voluntarily. It's not a particular program, um, but it, it's, uh, and kids want to be involved in it. And we've had a great success rate over the last few years. Um, everyone that's a full-time participant in the program is graduating high school. Almost everyone is going to college, which, which are great statistics, um, putting in the context of, of, of Camden youth. Um, our executive director, Kristen Prynne, is great. She's got a master's in, in social work and has amazing personal experience to bring to this program. Um, so it's been personally rewarding for me. I've been involved for the last four years. I've been the board chair for the last three. But to tie it back to what we're talking about here today, and, and I mentioned this earlier, as the chair of the organization, and we have a very, we have a very small staff, so there's a lot of aspects where uh, I, I'm getting involved in, in various short and long-term aspects of the, the business, and really as a business. Um, I've been the client over the last few years, which has been you know, a unique perspective that I've, I've gained. Granted, our, our revenues and income might be a little different than some of my clients, but at the end of the day, we are, we are looking at budgets. We are, in our world, making bet the company decisions. Um, you know, Lucy, when I first got involved, was just a, basically a youth group of a, of a, a church initiative. We spun off. That was a very large decision that we had to make. We had to make a decision thereafter. Do we want to stay involved uh, on our own? Do we want to merge with somebody? Um, we recently purchased a house, to, to basically our dream house, if you will, um, and we're now up and running, and that was obviously a huge commitment. So um, those are bet the company decisions that I've had to be very involved in, uh, working with the board, working with an executive committee. Donors, in a lot of ways, are like shareholders, right? Um, we're asking people to invest in Kristen, invest in the organization, invest in the youth, invest in me in a way. Um, so I, I, in, in a small way, I'm getting a lot of aspects that our clients deal with on a regular basis. And we've had lawyers represent us. Yeah. And so I've been on the other side, um, in, including paid lawyers. Some, some have been pro bono work, but sometimes we have had legal bills to pay. And I, I've learned a lot of appreciation for what our clients deal with um, from putting that client hat on. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I want to jump back into deal world for a minute sure. here again. So in putting together a transaction, when, when I think about you know, why attorneys get involved and why clients bring attorneys in, right. one, it's to memorialize the transaction that the parties have agreed right. to, right? But bigger picture is they're looking for you to protect them, right? To mitigate the risk of the deal in whatever that may mean, depending on the facts and circumstances. Talk a little bit about the techniques that you might use to help mitigate those risks. Sure. So, and some of this is fairly customary in a, in a deal, but I, I do want to talk about how it's changed a lot recently, particularly with the, the current landscape. So, in a, in a typical purchase agreement, there's a section on how the purchase price works. Um, one of the ways a, a buyer or seller would protect themselves is, you know, if you're buying the whole company, you may ask for a certain amount of working capital to be going with the business. Well, what happens if you don't get that at the end of the day? You might, the seller might say they're giving that to you, but how do you know? So you, know, you could have an escrow account to um, handle disputes that may come from that. You may have a post-closing adjustment period for how much, how much working capital was actually delivered and looking at it post-closing once the buyer has access to the company, how much is actually there. And you compare those numbers. Uh, in, a, in pretty much every purchase agreement, a seller will make, and the shareholders will make representations and warranties about the company, about the equity they hold, and if anything is incorrect or there's a breach of those reps, a, a buyer 
can often bring an indemnification claim and seek to be compensated for that. A lot of legal aspects go into that. What counts as a loss? That, that, that four-letter word uh, can have a lot go into it. Definition. Right, the definition is so key. Um, and, and the working capital I mentioned a few minutes ago, it, it's so important that we are connected with the accountants and the business folks and the finance teams on that. It's, it's very easy for the legal words not to connect to the work that tax and accounting advisors are, are doing. Um, and, you know, and then for the, in, in this indemnification space, there's often an escrow account that a seller may be able to go after if there's a dispute and the parties can work it out. So there's some cash set aside. But it has one aspect that has changed a lot over the last few years, and it's, it, it's actually becoming more pronounced month to month, really. As valuations have continued to get high, as sellers are getting more leverage in a lot of transactions, particularly if it's a competitive bid process, um, we are still seeing more and more sellers asking, frankly, expecting something called rep and warranty insurance to protect themselves. And I, I can explain a little bit more about what that is in a minute reducing the amount of the escrow accounts, uh, and, and other ways that they can basically just walk away from a deal when it's done. And, and if you put yourself in a, in a seller's seat, you know, if you're a family business, you've been running this for 30 years, you're selling your business, let's say, for $50 million. It's nice to be able to be done, sell the transaction, go off, buy an island somewhere, sure. and be, be at peace. You know, it, it would be nice to not have a private equity firm or a strategic company or, or large investor come after you three, four years down the road for a lawsuit because of something that maybe isn't even fraud. Maybe you just missed something in the transaction. It's nice to be able to walk away from that. That's the hope. Again, we have all these escrow accounts. We have all these indemnification claims that counter that. Uh, if you're a private equity seller, you want to be able to get the proceeds from a deal and be able to distribute it to your limited partners. You don't want to be sitting there uh, two or three years from now and having to make a capital call because of some indemnification claim because something got missed in a deal. So um, those sort of conflicting interests in, a, in any deal, which really it is in most deals, in these competitive bid processes, these, what we're seeing sellers ask for is rep and warranty insurance. And the insurance community has really uh, provided a, this service. And so far, so far, it's been working out pretty well, I, I think, to bridge these gaps. But the buyers or the buyer and seller together will, will pay for an insurance policy that covers breaches of the reps and warranties. And Often, not always, there's some skin in the game still for the sellers, but we're not talking the 10, 15% of a purchase price escrow anymore. Now we're talking 1% or half a percent. It's more money that the sellers can take and walk away from the table. Um, and the buyers, in, in a sense, are getting protected too because there's now an insurance company there. Uh, again, so far, there's been a decent history of claims being paid out. Um, and, and Another important point from a buyer's perspective. Yeah, we only have about 60 seconds, so this is going to be a quick point. Jeff. Okay, so from, from the buyer's perspective, if you're bringing on a CEO after you've bought the company, it's not a good spot to be suing your CEO a year or two after the fact, right? So if you're going against an insurance provider, that's, that's a strong benefit for a buyer. Yeah, we're going to have to have you back on to elaborate on that point sure. and others. We uh, had a lot to cover and the time went so fast. <laughs> uh, thanks for being my guest today on Behind the Numbers. Today's guest was Joe Cadlick, partner at Pepper Hamilton. I'm Dave Bookbinder of the Pine Hill Group, and I will see you next time on Behind the Numbers.